Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from my home office in Narragansett, Rhode Island. That's right, my family and I have concluded our 10-month, 12,000-mile, 33-state tour around the United States, and we got back here just in time for mask mandates to be lifted and vaccinations to be uh, further uh, uh, being embraced across the country, and it just feels really good. Uh, and, and candidly, I'm excited to record a podcast with a reliable internet connection. And so with that, Peter, I welcome you. Uh, my guest today is Peter Hayashida, who is the president of the UCR Foundation and vice chancellor for university advancement at the University of California, Riverside. Welcome, Peter. Thanks, Brent. It's great to be here. So uh, how are you feeling? You were just sort of sharing uh, before we started recording the um, similar sort of sense of optimism after a year of uh, challenges on many front fronts. I think so. You know, it's been um, tough to make predictions in the last year. I was looking through some campus messages that we did last year, and it the recurrent theme was postponing reopening for another month, postponing reopening for another few weeks. And here we are 14 months later, and it looks like there's finally a light at the end of the tunnel. And it feels good. It feels good that, uh, you know, there's a lot of tragedy, a lot of loss over the course of the last 14 months. Uh, but we have to lean into what's coming down the road. Our students are going to be coming back in person this fall full time. And that's going to be a, a monumental undertaking for all of our campuses. But uh, I think for ours, we're really focused on making sure that we keep the safety and health of our community top of mind. So it's going to be a busy summer. Love it. Yeah. Just yesterday, I sent out a note to our team uh, inviting fully vaccinated members of the Evercrew to our office on June 1st. So uh, it probably will be after June 1st by the time this is published. But um, uh, there was a tremendous enthusiasm from our uh, New England team in particular to be able to get back together uh, in person. And so uh, excited to host you today in addition to your leadership at UC Riverside, you've been a leader in the case community, I think prolific uh, participant uh, on the uh, advancement leadership circuit uh, and really appreciate all the time that you make um, uh, for the community, including today. One of the things that I've enjoyed uh, doing with our recent guests is uh, learning a little bit more about your own college journey. So take me back to, uh, I don't know, junior year of high school, uh, where were you? Who were you? And what led you to UCLA? Yeah, complicated question. So I was an army kid. I was born in Germany when it was still called West Germany. Uh, traveled about probably 15, 16 times before I landed uh, on an army base just outside of Tokyo for high school. And uh, so in my junior year in high school, I was thousands of miles away from the United States uh, my family could not afford to go back and look at schools. So I basically picked my college out of a view book. And when, when view books were still a thing, I really wanted to live in California because it was one of the few states I hadn't lived in, one of the few parts of the countries I hadn't lived in that really seemed appealing. Uh, and, and I won't lie, one of the greatest appeals was the lack of winter. Um, and, you know, for me, I ended up applying to several schools. I ended up getting into a couple. I looked at the view books and there's just something about the UCLA uh, brand and the UCLA value proposition that appealed to me. I, I won't say it was highly scientific because when you're 16, 17 years old, you're not making highly scientific decisions. But you know, I was pretty involved in high school and looked forward to being someplace where I could actually live in a city. I had never actually lived in a city. I had always lived in suburbs. Uh, decisions my parents made so that we could be in uh, good schools because uh, I went to public schools my whole life. And being in a city like Los Angeles with its sort of thriving Hollywood community with the access to you know, beach, mountains, desert, the whole thing just seemed really appealing to me as an 18-year-old. As an uh, so I arrived in Southern California having never lived here before, having no family or friends in the state. Uh, figured out, I don't even remember how I did it, but I figured out how to get from LAX to the campus and uh, got settled in. And, and my parents many years later told me they kept waiting for me to call home and say, I'm ready to come home now. And I said, I didn't know that was an option, but uh, my parents at that point were living in Washington, DC. So the idea of 
going to, I love DC in the spring and fall. Um, not so crazy about it in the summer and winter. So uh, that wasn't even an option for me, but it was, you know, my college experience was as it is for many people, the place where I grew up, it was a yeah. place where I became an adult, where yeah. I adopted the values that make me who I am today. Peter, can I ask uh, just on the, uh, the military background, I, I recently hosted Jim Langley. He also had a military mm-hmm. family background. We've had a couple of military um, uh, family guests recently, and they've made the comment that it was really good prep for, uh, you know, working with a global community, being a road warrior, sometimes in the sector, you need to move institution to institution, almost like it's base to base. Um, I am curious, either via your time in West Germany or Tokyo, were there any other international stops? Um, but what was your most poignant memory from your, your childhood with that, uh, with that context? Yeah, I'm not sure a particular memory sticks out. What I will tell you relative to your comment about the the trend, I actually know a number of professionals, colleagues across advancement who have a similar background, whether it's military or diplomatic corps or or business interests. You know, I think this kind of childhood confers or demands a a particular set of skills, uh, one of which is you learn how to make friends really quickly because you don't have a lot of time to waste developing long friendships. Now, learning how to keep friends is a whole different skill set that I didn't have to pick up until I lived in Los Angeles, which, uh, you know, I've lived in Southern California my whole adult life. So I finally figured that piece out. The second thing is you become much more tolerant to ambiguity and change because, uh, you know, you just don't know where you're going to be the next year and you have no control over it. And so part of that, I think, is getting a sense of peace about the things you do control and the things you don't control and then learning how to psychologically and emotionally get yourself through those periods. And so much of our profession is about, you know, in some ways doing our best to look around the next corner, but needing to have five or six plans in their back pocket so that when things go sideways, as they generally do in our world, we have a graceful way of making it look like that's what we intended to do all along. And so I think this is really good preparation for the kind of work that we do. I am, I have not, I'm uncharacteristic of, of many in our profession and that I have not um, replicated my parents' journey of going from place to place to place. And I think what happens when you come out of this childhood is one of two things. Either you become that person who goes from place to place to place because it's what you know, or you stay someplace and never want to leave because it, it's what feels like you've been missing all your life. And so I've never seen a reason to leave. I love the work that I do. I believe in the institutions I serve. So um, it's, it's been good. I love it. Um, so was there like a day per year or every other year when you'd sit around the dinner table, and like open the letter to find out where you were going to live for the next year or two, or, or was it less uh, dramatic than that? Well, uh, I'm not sure it was less dramatic, but there was no letter. My dad would uh, come home from work and uh, usually uh, over dinner, I, I he would have a conversation with my mom first. And then my brother and I would usually be over dinner or some other context. And they would tell us where we were moving next. And, uh, you know, my dad made an observation at one point that the strange thing about me is I always uh, was very sad to leave wherever we were and very upset about having to leave. And then the same thing would happen after the next place. And I think part of that is because, I have a really strong commitment to sort of living in the moment. And so when people ask me, where's the, where's the best place you've ever lived? It tends to be wherever I happen to be, because frankly, you know, I, I think there have been good and bad about every place I've lived, every job I've had, every uh, community I've, I've been part of. And I feel that I can spend a lot of time fixating on all the things that could have, would have, should have been. But the reality is that that moment every year was, you know, its own mild version of dramatic trauma. Right. And then we'd move on and then it would be fine. And frankly, the best thing about it, Brent, was that I was kind of a dorky kid. So being able to start fresh every year was not a bad thing for me. It, it, it almost, I mean, it, it really does remind me of this trip that my family and I just went on where 33 states, 10 months, we'd spend a week or two, maybe three at a given campground our, my boys are seven, five, and two, you know, the, the two bigger boys would get out, try to meet some friends. Those friends would leave two days later, meet some new friends. They'd leave two days later. Then we'd leave 
and they never wanted to leave. And then they'd be sad that we left. And then we get to the new campground and they'd be like, this is the best place ever. And it was just that, that cycle um, over yeah. and over, uh, which, um, it, you know, it's sort of uh, related to maybe some of the feelings that you and your brother um, had. So you went to UCLA, uh, campus tours, orientation, volleyball, glee club. It seems like you're a pretty involved student. Um, at what point did you get a sense that, um, um, well, tell me about your own career path exploration. And at what point did you realize this business of advancement was a thing? Sure. So I didn't actually know advancement was a thing until I graduated because I wanted to keep going to the campus recreation center. And in order to do so, I had to join the alumni association, which was my first dawning realization that there was some office on the campus that dealt with people who had already left. I graduated into- so Fair a, to say, if you didn't want to go to the rec, we're probably not talking today. It's possible. Yeah. I, you know, here's the deal. I graduated in 1988 into uh, a US recession. I had a communication studies degree with no plan. And I have the kind of career people with that profile often end up with which is I went out in the private sector uh, because someone I worked for part-time as an undergraduate offered me a job. It was not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, but it was the only option I had at the moment. So I went and did uh, basically financial and marketing analysis for a couple of years. Uh, it was a strange time in my life. I was working for a sort of a holding company that had, they were syndicating multifamily real estate limited partnerships, which is as exciting as it sounds but they were also the owners of an ugly duckling franchise, a rental car franchise. They um, had an asbestos abatement company. They were the first non-native uh, uh, management company to be brought in to run a gaming facility in California. So it was a strange time where I, I sort of got a little bit of exposure to everything and it was fun. I mean, I spent two years doing that and it was a lot of fun. And I promised my boss I would stay for two years. At the end of two years, I said, you know, my job right now is to make rich people richer. And there's a, there's a role for that in the world, but it's not the way I want to spend the rest of my life. So I had a little bit of a midlife crisis at a very young age and um, did some trolling around to find out what might be available in the marketplace. And a friend of mine said, hey, you should go to UCLA. And um, they're looking for a, a, an academic advisor. And I said, why would they hire me? I have no advanced degree. I have no full-time professional counseling experience. I was a peer counselor as an undergraduate. And uh, my friend said, you don't know what the rest of the pool looks like. And I said, well, good point. So I went in and interviewed. And um, I think that by the time I got to the finalist stage, the director of counseling was being told that she couldn't possibly hire me. I was too young. I, had, I didn't have enough experience. I didn't have the academic background. And she was just eccentric enough that she thought that was all the reason she needed to hire me. So she hired me and I spent three years doing that. It was so much fun. I, I, Why? Well, I would see, you know, a dozen students a day, one-on-one, -on -one, really focusing on helping them get their degree, but also dealing with all the sort of ancillary aspects of their life that go into that. So roommate issues, um, you know, parental pressures to do this, that, or the other, uh, boyfriend, girlfriend problems. I mean, there, there was, when, when you're sitting in someone's office and you feel like they're willing to listen to you, there's a willingness to sort of be vulnerable, which I think is something that a lot of us right. struggle with uh, in a variety of situations. So it was, it was a lot of fun. And I felt like I was doing something meaningful. You know, you don't always see how the story ends, but you, you do see them get to graduation. And that was the main goal. Um, so in the early like, uh, almost a little bit of, you know, part advisor, part therapist. It's how it felt. It is how it felt. And, and I probably would have stayed in that job. Uh, I, I don't know what I would have done, but I, I had, I wasn't planning on leaving that job, but the tail end of the recession, which is when the sort of the whiplash tends to hit the public sector uh, was that uh, I was told I was going to be laid off mm -hmm. and I wasn't given a time frame. I wasn't given a, a date specific. I, my boss actually told me, we might not have to do it, but if the dean asks for any more cuts, you're the top one on the list. Wow. So I then- Are you surprised that they even gave you that heads up? I mean, that's not all that common. Well, I, was, I wasn't surprised because when I, I had gone on vacation 
uh, for a week. And when I came back, six people had been laid off. And so I went into my boss's office and said, so lots of layoffs. And she said, yes, I need to tell you that you're next, uh, but, but not now. And I said, well, I can't wait to, I, I can't wait to be jobless uh, in, in a pretty bad economy. So uh, I went at the time we did not, there wasn't really a functional internet at the time. So there was the, the blue stapled packet of jobs in the break room. And I went and pulled it down, photocopied it, took it home, went through the entire list of UCLA jobs for that week and found one that I thought I could talk my way into. And it was a program manager running the alumni scholarship programs. And I thought managing volunteers, managing budgets, working with students, I can knit all that together based on the experience I have. So I went in and I was fortunate that the previous incumbent had left to become a development officer a year before. And the small team that was covering the job was tired of having to do their jobs plus this job. So I came along at the right time and, and I ended up actually getting an offer less than a week after I found out I was going to be laid off. So I made the immediate jump, went into alumni relations. I was, um, I loved the people. I was completely overwhelmed by the lifestyle. Uh, alumni relations people, I spent seven years in alumni relations. We, we are bananas. We get into the office at the crack of dawn. We stay until midnight. We are on weekends. I mean, it was just when I was in academic advising, you know, at 4.30, you close the, 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 the sliding window and you go home. This was just a whole different lifestyle for me. It took me a few years to sort of get my legs under me. But once I did, I realized, wow. So the, the goal here is take people who already know the institution and help them fall in love with it over and over and over again. And then you know, let the development people show them how they can express that love in a meaningful way. Uh, that seemed like a pretty cool idea for me. So that, that was sort of my first exposure to advancement. And it, it was really, um, and actually that's, you know, over the course of that time, I did spend some time with Jim Langley, uh, who at the time was at UC San Diego, and we were working on a system-wide project together. And um, great guy. I learned a lot from him. And, uh, and, and got really exposed to a, a, a suite of leaders that had many of the qualities I aspired to develop in myself. I felt like I was um, rough around the edges. I needed that kind of, of role modeling. I needed the, the experience to be able to uh, become a, a higher valued contributor to my organization. Peter, even the way that you just articulated uh, the role or your view of the Alumni Association or Alumni Relations, which is there's already familiarity, right? They've already done business, if you will, with the institution. The goal is to create a lifelong journey, help them fall in love over and over so that then development can help them find their way to make an impact. Um, not everybody would agree with you that that's the goal of alumni relations or that, uh, you know, the, the kind of most maybe black and white version of that would be alumni relations does lead gen for development. Um, that makes people uncomfortable <laughs> when I say things like that, but um, it was along the lines of what you just shared. Did you realize that right away? Was it more separate um, or independent as, as an organization at UCLA, or was that just something that you came to appreciate? So the UCLA model is an interdependent model. So unlike Berkeley is the only of the 10 UC campuses that has a fully independent alumni association. So our alumni association was part of our advancement division. And so I had some sense of context. I'm not sure I could have articulated what I just said to you then, but I did have this sense that, you know, that was still the days when it was common for people to talk about being in friend raising versus fundraising. And I'm not sure, you know, at the time I probably bought into the notion that there's this firewall between those of us who ask for time and talent and those of us who ask for treasure. And it's only, you know, I was, um, I remember when I was having a conversation at one point with Mike Eicher from, uh, who was my boss at UCLA, who's now at Ohio State. And he said, you know, if I had known what I know now when I was Associate Vice Chancellor for Development, I, there are some things I might've done a little differently with the benefit of broader context. And I completely feel that uh, all the time. I see 
dots that need to be connected. And I now know that's my job to connect those dots. But um, one of my most important roles is translating those lessons for my team. So they get clear line of sight to the role that they play in the lifespan of one of our uh, graduates. And, and really starting from the moment they, they consider us in the pre-admission cycle through their student time, we have a student alumni association, through their, their lives as alumni, and hopefully for some subset of them as donors. And the idea that we are in the relationship business in some ways felt at the time divorced from the idea that we were in, that part of us, some of us, were in the revenue generating business. Uh, I now know that those two are not mutually distinct and that one requires the other. And that if we really think about this as a broader, so what I tell people is my, my team, we're the storytellers, right? And that we tell stories for different reasons. Sometimes we tell stories to inspire nostalgia. Sometimes we tell stories to, to uh, inspire action. And sometimes we, we tell stories to inspire giving that will change the lives of future generations. But if we, can, if we can all see that we share that value in common, then the stories that we tell have a much more unified narrative arc than if we're just off all doing our own thing. I love the way that you put that. And I wanna go back to what you were describing that you could call perhaps the alumni journey or the alumni life cycle. It could start even back to enrollment, right? Because mm -hmm. part of the message that is being shared by your colleagues in enrollment and admissions is outcomes and impact and not necessarily a promise, but certainly a commitment to creating opportunity and, 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 uh, and outcomes. How would you frame in, in broadest brush uh, terms the ideal alumni journey? Like when you think about, you know, break it up into, fourths or fifths, you know, you graduate the first quarter, the second quarter, the third quarter, the fourth quarter. And what is that intersection of alumni engagement and development on that ideal journey? So let me start by providing the context of the, some of the things that make my campus distinctive. So we are 25,000 students. We're a research one university. We are located in a part of California that has two main industries that have been its sort of spine economically. One is agriculture and the other is logistics, warehousing and distribution. This is a part of California where the college going rate is very low, where access to healthcare, education and other resources is low and where we became majority minority many, many years before most parts of the country were even having that conversation. Our student body is reflective of that diversity. So uh, more than half of our students are first in their family to attend college. More than half are on federal Pell Grants. 85% of our students are non-white. So for me, the first piece of this is how we tell the story. Oh, and 97% of our students are California residents, which, is, which puts us among the highest in the UC system for enrolling California residents. So what this means as a starting point is we view ourselves as an access for point for social mobility. For many of our students, it's not just, they're carrying the weight, not just of their own accomplishment, their own challenges, their own um, struggles, they are carrying the weight of their families and their communities. So part of this for me as the first chapter is, how do we help them understand as students that they belong, that they can succeed? We have, we're ranked number one for social mobility in the country by US News and World Report, and that's not accidental. We have made a very deliberate attempt to push our graduation rates as high as possible because we feel like our students deserve that. And if they come out with half a degree and all the debt, that's a very bad formula for future success. So that's part one. Part two, um, so my team oversees commencement, the commencement ceremonies. And it is one of my favorite times of the year, which has been very hard the last couple of years because you get to see a student's name is announced and you hear the air horn and you see the you know, 25 people in the back row get up and scream. And they've usually got a giant cutout of the student's head when they were a baby. And I, all I could think to myself is, thank goodness that didn't exist when I was in high school or college. But I realized that what's happening there is that they're celebrating a moment that wasn't even an option for them when they thought about what the future of their family might look like. And, and now they're, they're placing all of their hopes and dreams on this young person who's getting ready to go out into the workforce. 
We spend a lot of time now talking about what it takes to get those students launched because there have been two major recessions over the course of the last decade. And I got here during the first one in 2009, and I'm now watching our students graduate into the next one. And I think that first period is really about trying to figure out how we can be of service to them, how we can help them find the alumni network that will give them opportunities, how we can help them develop the skills. You know, when you're coming from a family of agricultural workers, how do you figure out which suit you're supposed to buy if you're a young man or a young woman looking to, to professionalize your wardrobe? How do you figure out how to handle money? How do you figure out what, what happens, what, what's meaningful in an interview? How do you learn how to, basically things like shaking hands. Uh, you know, if you shake the hands of a Gen Z person, you know that there's a quite a range of, of uh, I think, adoption of what we, people who are older and been out a little bit longer, um, would, would feel telegraphs a sense of confidence and a sense of, of competence. Um, then we've got that sort of that building your life, building your family uh, part of the alumnus's career, where we're really trying to figure out ways to help the graduates adjust to that period that can be very disorienting, right? Because you've got kids, you've got, they may be buying their first house, they may be building their careers, they're often building their careers, trying to figure out what the next step on the ladder is. They're, you know, too senior for resume writing workshops, but they don't, they still have a great deal of insecurity about what they don't know. And unfortunately, they don't know what they don't know. So, you know, trying to be engaging of them to get them into the idea that their time to give back is coming soon and helping to socialize them in that direction. Um, and then as they get toward the, the, the end of their careers where they're, they're really in charge of what's going on around them, really helping them figure out how best they wanna make the world a better place. Most of our students, because of their backgrounds, graduate with a very strong sense of mission. They wanna make the world better than it was for them, uh, for their younger brothers and sisters, for the kids that will come after them. And so, you know, we have mentoring programs, we have alumni coming into classes to speak, we have all the same kinds of things many institutions have, but for our students, our alumni who come back, the stories are a little bit more poignant, a little bit more characterized by struggle. And I think that's really a, a fun period of time when you see them say, I did that, I overcame that, and, and I'm a better person because of it. And then, of course, there's the latter part of, the, of their lives where we tend to do things like plan giving seminars and uh, travel programs and all the kinds of things that help people settle into the end of their lives. I will tell you, Brent, and you know this probably better than most, I'm not sure what that's gonna look like with this generation of college students. They're waiting longer to have children. If they're having children at all, our birth rate dipped for the first time in, in history, I think. Um, they're not getting married. Uh, someone told me a few years ago that teenagers don't go on dates anymore, they go in big groups. And uh, I, I can't get my brain around that uh, because I'm old, but there are all kinds of social changes that are happening that are going to impact the way that we message to our graduates what our value proposition is. And I don't think we've figured that out yet. And the pandemic in some ways didn't, may have introduced us to some new approaches and some new messages, but it hasn't helped us completely solve that problem. Peter, thank you for sharing that, that background and context. And I sort of put you on the spot with that question and it was an incredible answer. And I think, you know, first of all, really understanding that while there is a little bit of copy and steal everything and learn from our peers, what is your unique context? And you just summarized where UCR fits and your student population. And I love the, the true mission of social mobility, which I think every institution has to a certain degree, but just given the demographics you shared, it's, it's really striking. I also heard you talk about the alumni journey in a way that um, honestly, it sounds super aspirational to me. And what I heard you describe is, I think it could be a masterclass on what we should be aspiring for in this sector, which is how can we help you? And in doing so, earn your support and earn your loyalty over time. And I love everything you described. Like, what do people need right out of school? They need mentorship guidance. In your case, they might need help picking out the suits, you know, it, it, down to that level. What do you need? We can't do everything for you, but if there are certain things we're uniquely positioned to deliver, let's do that. 
and let's do it again. Let's lead with um, support and then let's earn the gift. But there are way too many people I talk to, and, and I, I know you know um, examples of this as well, where if I ask them to describe their experience, they would say, as soon as I graduated, the first time I heard from my alma mater was when they asked me for money. And then the next time I heard from them was when they asked me for money. And yeah, they send me emails about events and stuff. But the only time anybody would ever call me or, or go out of their way one-to-one was a solicitation. And so do you feel that tension or given your context, do you have a different strategy? I mean, how do you even know, have I earned the opportunity to ask you for a gift yet, especially in this economic context? Or if the week that you had found out you might be losing your job and feeling that sense of probably panic early in your career, if that's the week UCLA had asked you to give, probably the wrong week. So I don't know if you have a reaction to that or if you all have specific strategies given your context in that dynamic. Well, thanks for asking the question, Brent, because I want to be really clear that what I described to you is what I think should be happening, but that we're all learning this together. Um, we have a, I have a rock star team. They are amazing. But I would say that our biggest mantra is that we always want to be better tomorrow than we are today. And we know that there are a lot of ways we're falling short. Some of that is resources, right? I mean, I think for public universities in particular, but for all of us at this point, um, how do you make sure that you are allocating and prioritizing your resources in ways that best serve your constituents and best serve the institution? Um, and part of it is for me thinking about the ways that we, my, my job is to inspire people to cross over that hill because there's a beautiful valley on the other side. But if I can't describe that beautiful valley, it's not very motivating. And so what I just shared with you is sort of my vision of what it should look like, but I'm not going to tell you that it looks that way for every one of our graduates. We have 120,000 alumni, and I can guarantee you, we have a lean alumni staff and they do great work, but trying to get that touch, that personal feeling is hard. And so we spend a lot of time thinking through what can we do? You know, we're really good in advancement at starting new things. We're terrible at letting things go. And so every year I take my team through an exercise where we say, what's not working anymore? And let's just call it quits on that. And there's always someone, sometimes it's a staff member, sometimes it's a volunteer, sometimes it's a, someone on the academic side who really loves that program and they don't want it to go away. But part of our job is to make these tough decisions in, in the face of limited resources. What are we going to do that's going to have the biggest impact? And that calculus has changed in the past year. Uh, you know, even teaching students how to shake hands in a business environment, I'm not sure we're going to be shaking hands in a business environment in the near future. And so how do we navigate that sort of unknown space? And part of it for me is got to get back to the basic principles. The basic principle is how do you build trust? How do you show respect? How do you tell an alumnus, how do you telegraph to them what their future path as, a, as it relates to their connection to the institution would look like from our perspective if we, if we imagine this great world in which UCR remains a part of their lives for the rest of their lives in ways that enriches them, but also lays a path for the people who are going to come behind them in a way that only they can do because only they understand that struggle of self-doubt and insecurity and uncertainty and working three jobs while they're trying to take care of their younger brothers and sisters while they're trying to get their college degree. I mean, this is, this is big, heavy stuff, but I feel like if I can't distill that and synthesize it and describe it to my team, it's going to be, it, you lose track of what you're, what you're working toward. It's not about getting this project or this event or this program done. It's about how does this advance our broader agenda of building a lifetime relationship with our graduates. And if, if we can do that well, um, that's great, but we know we can do it better and we're going to keep doing that. Well, yeah, I mean, look, you talked a lot about prioritization and just the reality of, of staff sizes. And what we've been spending a lot of time thinking about with many of our partner institutions is that that sliding scale of personalization. If on one end of one extreme end of the spectrum, you could imagine the principal gift prospects or the trustees, right? The people who are 
uh, rightfully so, getting white glove, concierge service. You probably texted them yesterday and will text them today and text them tomorrow, right? So there's a small group of people there who get that highest level of personalization and service. On the other end of the spectrum, our students graduating right now, going into the alumni community, maybe with debt, maybe without, trying to get their first job that have the lowest philanthropic capacity of anybody in your community. And what level of personalization can we offer that cohort of students recognizing that you described so well what they need at that point in their in their life and obviously everybody's been seeking the the silver bullet for you know mentorship or this community and we'll launch it and magically everyone will be able to help each other and i don't know that we've found that yet um in the sector uh even linkedin itself i think sometimes has struggled to get young students to adopt it and and use it to its fullest potential. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I do think about ways that, you know, I'm hopeful that there are ways that technology can help provide more personalization to more people recognizing we can't do everything for everyone. But one personal example I had recently was, um, you know, I I get texted once a year from my alma mater. Mm. You want to guess what that text message says? Give today. It, it says, can you give today? Because it's yeah, it's give day. Right. And uh, and that's fine. And it I see it, right? It stands out relative to an email. But I often wonder, you know, how many people get that text message who aren't having a positive vibe with the institution right now or are out of work because we've been in such a confusing period? How yeah. does that feel? And, and I even think about, you know, technologies like that where, you know, it was the telephone. What do we use the phone for? To call people and ask for money. Then it was email. And now it's text messaging. But what if the first text message was, you know, hey, Peter, on a one to 10 scale, how would you rank your current feeling toward the UCLA Alumni Association? And then based on what you respond, you're going to get a variety of, of, of follow-up. Uh, it could be if you're a nine or a 10, like, that's amazing. We love you too. And we have ambitious giving goals. Would you consider renewing your gift? But if you give them a one or a two or a three or a four, then maybe we put you on a different path, which is, I'm sorry you feel that way. You know, how might we be able to help? Or could you describe why you're so disappointed in the experience? And like giving a voice, getting some context before just leading with the ask, I don't think anybody's doing what I just described. Maybe somebody's tested it. We don't do that at Evertrue. It's not what we offer, but it's just an example of like, how can we better understand where our constituents are, maybe leveraging technology and then somewhat modestly personalizing the experience. If somebody says, I'm disappointed because I'm unemployed, well, then can that trigger well, here's our career resources, or would you like to schedule a time with a career coach, or do you need resume prep? I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm uh, too aspirational here, but I feel like some of those opportunities are around the corner, um, but obviously we can feel anchored by our current strategies and our current budget and doing what we need to get done this week. Um, no, I, I actually completely agree with you, and you know, this is this notion of mass customization. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, a few years ago, we hired a new chief communications officer, and um, he comes to this with a very acute sense of the sort of the evolution of communication. And in some ways, text messaging. I remember ten years ago, a student telling me, "I only have an email account, so I so my parents can contact me, right?" Because there's a whole generation that then that was that had left text messaging. What we have found now is that our young alumni have left text messaging. They're either on WhatsApp or they're on uh, social media. So we have now a team of three people, uh, two social media experts and one social media data analytics person who really track our channels, figure out what's getting engagement, figure out how to push out content that people find relevant, useful, and helpful. Um, you know, it's the way that our young alumni are living their lives. So rather than expecting them to come to where we are, we're trying to go to where they are. Uh, it, it, is, it is too early to tell whether this strategy is going to be successful. 
But my question is sort of what comes after social media? Like I wouldn't have imagined 15 years ago that right now we'd all be basically communicating in 140 character or whatever, um, large scale messages that people actually read. They, they may not read them deeply and they, you know, it, it, in some ways I like the constraint of having to be pithy because it prevents you from droning on. But if we think about what the next generation of communication technologies is going to be, I feel like we've got to be, we've got to be looking around that corner as much as we can in order to do exactly what you're describing, which is, and and I did this, I did this um, TED style talk at one of the district conferences a few years ago. And one of the first things I said was, you know, you log into your Amazon account. First thing you see is, hello, Brent. And then you see a list of recommendations that are absolutely tailored to you. And Amazon has millions of customers. So they have figured out how to leverage technology to create a sense of intimacy with their customers that we can only aspire to, given the resources that we have at our disposal. But I think that's the problem is we are inheriting that set of expectations that we're going to be as adept as the private sector, as the technology sector in connecting people in a way that feels personalized, distinctive, highly tailored, customized, um, you know, for someone my age bespoke, uh, nobody under 40 would know what that means. But, you know, that, that experience, I think, is what we're striving for. And how to do it at scale is the, is the mystery that nobody has cracked yet. Well, I see your second uh, employer of, of your alumni, uh, second largest employer of your alumni is Amazon. Uh, third largest is Google. Fourth is Apple. And so those are pretty good uh, examples of mass personalization. Um, and I do think, look, like Zoom is an example where it's been around for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, it went from 10 million users in December of 2019 to 300 million by April. And it's continued yeah. to obviously grow from there. Um and I look at this as a bridge, uh, it, it, you know, trends relating to virtual reality, I think, could be pretty interesting in the context of your work, right? How do we bring campus to you? There's no way that five years from now, we're going to be looking at each other in Zoom boxes the way that we are. And I feel like virtual reality was about three years too late for this pandemic. And I'm sure there are a lot of people kicking themselves because, Uh, When you think about the virtual reunions that everybody had to spin up, the virtual events that all were just different versions of a bunch of Zoom boxes, Mm -hmm. I think that there's something uh, pretty special around the corner um, in this context. But I have to ask you, I mean, you're concentrated, your community is concentrated generally in the LA area, but getting around the LA area is not the easiest place, uh, not to mention the broader, um, you know, the broader uh, San Francisco area, San Diego, Orange County. Um, any big moments with the Zoom adjustment that you all experienced, good, bad, otherwise? Yeah, so the, um, you know, so about three quarters of our graduates are in the state of California. So that actually makes things in some ways a little bit easier until you remember that the state of California, that one out of every eight Americans lives in California. So that's not that surprising. And that the state practically traverses uh, three quarters of the West Coast of the United States. So uh, you're right that that even we have people as close as 45 minutes away who will not come to campus because it's too much of a hassle. And for us, the Zoom moment, while it was not asked for, uh, and we weren't prepared for it, has given us an opportunity to add some tools to our toolbox that we absolutely plan to take with us after this pandemic is over. We started getting, so we had development officers who were securing meetings with people who had been unresponsive before. Why? Well, they weren't traveling. They were sitting at home alone. They were bored and lonely. And it gave, that, gave them a chance to see someone, to see a human being and have them respond. We had events where the turnout was huge and we didn't have restraints on space or catering or anything like that. And people could come drop in and then leave without it in any way disrupting the programming. In some ways, if you have an in-person event and people are seated and 10 people in the back get up and leave, it's a little distracting. Whereas with Zoom, I can't even see all the boxes on the screen. And with Zoom webinar, you can't see any boxes. So 
I think for us, those tools will really help make the campus more accessible. Interestingly enough, before this happened, we have a, an amazing videography team as well. Uh, we have one of our videographers who's, who's a, a certified drone pilot. And so we do a lot of these aerial kind of videos for our graduates who love it because the campus is growing physically a lot. But we also created a 360 degree virtual experience that we were taking out to all of our regional receptions for people who couldn't come to the campus and they put on the goggles. You know, there's just an iPhone in the goggles, but they put on the goggles and they could actually walk through the campus and look at how the skyline had changed to the campus, how the how the buildings had had looked today that they remember being different. Uh, that was you know, that well, was I, our first. I foray. clearly spoke way too soon on my virtual reality comments then. Well, look, I, I think one of the things I love about the work that we do, if we do it well, is we find people who are way smarter than us. We put them in jobs where they can have a big impact and then we get out of their way. This was not my idea, right? This was my communications guy came to me and said, okay, here's what we have in mind for the regional events. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And so he and the alumni person worked together and they put together this situation where at one point we had to be careful because we had a few people who were who we needed to have sit down before they put the goggles on because they it feels so real they were walking into tables and falling over and i thought to myself boy you know if we could think about how to marry that kind of an experience with this kind of an experience with some with whatever's around the next corner then in some ways someone being in santa monica or someone being in santa rosa or someone being in san francisco might have a similar opportunity to access the campus in ways that they would never do physically, right? They're not going to, our graduates who live in Silicon Valley, unless they have a specific reason to do so, which is usually their family still lives in the Inland Empire, they're not going to get on a, a Southwest plane, fly down to Ontario, rent a car, which you can't get now, and drive to the campus. So how do, how do those experiences shape your post-pandemic strategy? Because I think we're seeing a balance of, on one hand, an entire country that is so excited to get back together with friends and family and do things we haven't been able to do. A lot of development officers that are saying things like, I can't wait to get back out on the road. Does that mean we're going back to a world of 10 visits a month instead of 10 a week of spending $1,000 per trip to go and see people instead of being able to jump in and out of Zoom around the world instantly? Or do we settle out somewhere in between? So the leadership of our development team is really focused on how do we curate the right blend of in-person and virtual outreach so that we're being efficient with our resources, but also that we're being more accommodating of our donors, some of whom love the idea that they don't have to travel anywhere, they don't have to clean up their house to have someone in their home. They don't have to um, show up on time to a place. They just show up in front of their computer and that there's a very neat end where there's no sort of awkward, okay, so where are you parked? Uh, you know, it just, it ends. And so we're thinking about how to, so for example, when the, when the pandemic first started, Zoom visits were immediately reclassified as in-person donor calls. Because if you can see their face and you can have a conversation with them and you can move them toward a gift, however you do that, we need to make sure that was possible. So is that, some, will that be the case forever? I think so. I think so. I mean, we have some people who thrived in that environment. And I don't think it's a service to them to make them full-time digital gift officers. I'm not sure that that's going to give them the breadth of exposure that they need to be successful over the long term. But I do think that for some of our tech-savvy and tech-comfortable, tra translate, probably more digital generation gift officers, this is a very logical and comfortable addition to their arsenal of, of yeah. opportunities to engage donors. I also think that the idea that we are going to, you know, we're, so we're going through with what every other organization is going through, which is uh, who's going to get a flexible work schedule? Uh, how many days are people working from home? How are we going to make sure that we don't sacrifice the camaraderie of being in the same physical space. Um, I have specific concerns. I've been on the Summer Institute faculty for 10 years, and I see a lot of early career gift officers. And I think to myself, I'm glad they're going back to a shop where they've got lots of more senior people around who can mentor them and help them learn the rules of the road. 
Well, that's hard to do when you're sitting in your bedroom on the edge of your bed with a laptop in front of you. So I am worried about early career people. Interestingly enough, we surveyed our team um, on a lot of these issues about coming back. They're not that worried about it, but I'm worried about it because in some ways when I was early in my career, I didn't know what I didn't know. And if this had hit me early in my career, it would have been devastating because so much of the way I learn is by doing, watching and making mistakes. Like I've never learned about that, Peter, because I've actually had one like counterbalancing example personally, um, where we've brought some new people on to to Evertrue and uh, during the pandemic have never met in person. But one of the interesting things that we've been able to do is even in a conversation like you and I might have, I could now invite a brand new colleague to join that Zoom discussion, acknowledge that they're in more of an observation and training mode, let them see the interaction and be a part of it. The odds that I ever would have brought them with me to fly out to see you or to bring them to a case conference where we get together next to zero. And so I wonder if there's a way to almost enhance that training and and, and, and observation period because it's so easy to have three and four and you, you don't want to go crazy too many zoom boxes, but have you had experiences like that as well, whether it's with more junior employees or even uh, being able to engage deans and uh, more senior members of your team who realistically couldn't have joined field visits, but are now a zoom link away and can absolutely pop in and say hello to a donor or a trustee um, in, in a more streamlined fashion. For sure. And that's absolutely is the benefit of the platforms that we're using. And I have actually seen, absolutely seen this with development coordinator level uh, folks. Great example. Wouldn't wouldn't have been out on the road. Yeah. Right. Um, But they get to join a gift officer in a virtual meeting and listen to the language, watch the interaction, Um, you know, in in an optimal world, you know, I'm not managing at this level. But you'd want to make sure that the gift officer and the junior gift officer have a debrief afterwards to talk about, you know, what did you see? What did you learn? What did we walk away not knowing that we need to learn next time? What do you think the next steps are going to be for this person? What do you think their time horizon looks like based on what they told us? You know, all of those kind of things. Those are the teaching kinds of things that might happen in the car on the way back from a donor visit. But if there's no car on the way back, right. we just have to make sure that we don't forget to be intentional right. about the teaching moments that have to take place in order for the person who's doing the observing to make sense of what just happened. Yeah, the uh, kind of airport bar, you know, decompression, shoot the breeze. Uh, you know, right. none of us have had that uh, experience. Even if we've been at an airport, we certainly haven't had that experience. And um, you know, those are definitely uh, bonding moments in, in your world um, in ours. Our time has flown by. Um, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I want to be sensitive of your schedule. But there was one thing that you had uh, shared in our pre-work that, um, that struck me and, and something I've been thinking a lot about as well. We asked you if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing, what would it be? And you wrote that we consistently treat our staff and colleagues at least as well as we treat our donors in terms of communication, responsiveness, encouragement and recognition. And I would encourage anybody listening to follow Peter uh, on LinkedIn or reach out and connect if you if you aren't already connected, because I, I've noticed you do a lot of reading and you do share a lot of content, not about advancement, but about mm-hmm. leadership. And, right. you know, we talk so much in this sector about are we creating a great student experience, a great alumni experience, a great donor experience, probably not enough about is this a great staff experience? And so you've obviously given that a lot of thought and I'm just curious um, what led you down that path and uh, in in how you think about creating a compelling employee experience. Yeah, thanks for the question, Brent. It it is my passion at this point in my career to start thinking about what the next generation of leaders looks like in our profession. It's part of the reason why the teaching that I do for CASE is so personally meaningful to me because Having spent long stretches of time at two different campuses allowed me to sort of grow up in an advancement shop where, in two advancement shops where things were, I could observe changes over long periods of time. And one of the things that struck me early in my career 
was some of the gift officers who were amazing with donors, just thoughtful, compassionate, sensitive, great listeners who just abused the heck out of each other. And I didn't understand that dynamic. And what I'm trying to do is figure out a way, you know, the, 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 the rotating door problem that we have in development is in my mind, a combination of how we explain what a career path looks like, how we give people reasons to stay, how we support people's individual career paths and plans, how we provide flexibility in our advancement systems so that people can evolve and grow over time, maybe in place until the right opportunity comes along. All of these things require an enormous amount of commitment. And I, I put talent management in the same bucket as diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. You know, it's very easy to ignore those because I've got to make my annual goal this year. Totally understand if we don't have a job, there is no team to build. And I don't believe they're mutually exclusive. I think you can meet your annual goals and you can also be building the future of your team. Succession planning is critical. And if you think about a donor who uh, takes 15 or 20 years, which is not unusual for a principal gift donor, to get from first gift to first million dollar gift, they could go through 10, 15 gift officers during that time. It's hard to sustain momentum. If we, if we could expand the gift officer tenure from, you know, a Penelope Burke a few years ago found it was about 15 months in a job, which is crazy. But if we could extend that to, you know, three years, how might that accelerate that donor's thinking about what their philanthropic goals are and how those match with what our institutions have to offer? That's compelling to me. It's, it's both a business case, but it's also a human case because I see people leaving our sector for financial services, for banking, for sales. And I think to myself, some of these folks are really good, really talented, but they just didn't find their legs under them for this kind of work. I don't think there's anything more meaningful right now than helping people learn more, feed their curiosity and improve their lives and their communities. And that's what I feel like we do every day. So that's, you know, the, the rest of my career is going to be spent really being an evangelist for how we talk about building a career in advancement that culminates in a sense of belonging and value for our teams that allows them to contribute every day in a way as if it's their own kids going through that college and their own friends and family and alum who are or our alumni body. Because at the end of the day, you know, we have two assets in our shops that matter, people and data. And so we did a huge investment on the front end of building our team for our campaign. We did an alumni census because we wanted to beef up our data. Uh, we invested in infrastructure around technology. We didn't know that we were going to enter a global pandemic, but boy, I'm sure glad we did all that stuff before all this happened. Super inspiring uh, thoughts. When you, who are the people in the sector? It's a tight knit community. You've been involved with this for a long time. I mean, who are some of the people you mentioned, Michael Eicher, who are some of the other leaders that you think highly of that you feel share your point of view on the importance of uh, human capital and uh, uh, just folks that you turn to, to brainstorm the future of the sector? Oh, Brent, you're going to make me forget people. It's um, like, look, you just won the, the Grammy and now you need to get all the thank you. No, not just like, who there's are some no the way. Really, yeah. yeah. Well, so, so I had an email exchange this morning with Jim Husson, who you've had on this podcast, who I just think is amazing and brilliant and creative and smart and thoughtful. And one of my role models, uh, Martin Shell at Stanford does amazing work. You know, all my colleagues across the UC system, Julie Hooper, Rhea Turtletaub, um, Jennifer Arnett, I mean, just really smart, thoughtful, care about people in, a, in the broadest sense of the word. Um, and, you know, and, and, and there are lots more. And I, I know I'm going to get emails later on from people who have said, so you don't like the way I manage my team. But the reality is that all of us have a role to play in making this profession. We, you know, I, I would describe myself as a citizen of the profession, which is I may have stayed at one university system for my career, but what I'm doing is I'm trying to raise the standard of expectations for all of us, regardless of where we are, because we, we really have the potential to, uh, at, this, at this inflection point in our profession, to help people become better and feel more confident about the work that they do. And it, we're not gonna do that by sending people to conferences, right? It's, it's gotta be a full court press of mentorship, leadership development, training, succession planning, 
Uh, and I think that, that there are lots of vice presidents across the country, um, Jim Moore, Sergio Gonzalez. They're, they're just people who are doing this amazing work of preparing their teams for what's coming next. And I do think that one of the things that they share in common is a deep commitment to the, we are, all of us are smarter than any of us, and their willingness to stay in seat long enough to make an impact. And I, I do worry about some of the folks who float through positions in two-year increments and really don't get a chance to do anything that actually sticks. I love it. Uh, great closing thoughts. And I hope you all uh, in the race community have enjoyed getting a window into how Peter thinks. And uh, I'm sure uh, like me, it, it, it makes it even more clear why he is one of the real leaders in this sector. And I just can't thank you enough for sharing your point of view, uh, for your uh, optimism, but also some of the real challenges that need to be addressed. Uh, it means a lot. And I would encourage everybody, look Peter up on, on LinkedIn, shoot him a note, let him know what you think. Um, any closing thoughts? Uh, no, Brent, except that I, I really am grateful for you to you for providing this, this forum for conversation. We all feel so disconnected and isolated right now because of the, the moment that we're in. But the truth is that I have always found a community and a family across the practitioners and the, and the, and the partners that we have in the advancement profession. Uh, I think about some of the, we use one of the consulting firms and I rely on them pretty heavily for what's everybody else doing. And um, I, I've, all of these new part, these new consortiums have formed of small groups of vice presidents or chief advancement officers who are trying to figure out stuff that nobody ever told us we'd have to deal with and nobody ever told us how. So I'm, I'm really grateful. I appreciate all the leadership that you bring to our sector um, and looking forward to seeing more episodes. I did watch Jim's episodes. I, I think he's, as I say, I'm a big fan and um, it was a great conversation to watch. Yeah. I mean, look, Jim uh, giving the rundown of Bruce Springsteen uh, was pretty special and uh, definitely stands out, but this was too. And, and Peter, thank you um, so much. I wish you the absolute best. And while it has been great to connect periodically over Zoom, uh, I am hopeful that I'll see you in person sometime here in 2021. Can't wait. Thanks, Brent. Take care. Cheers. Be well. All right. Bye. Bye.